0: Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. We're so thankful that you chose to join us today, and we're so grateful that you're a part of our community. Just a quick reminder before we get to today's teaching, and that is that this coming Sunday, July 2nd, we will not be meeting at Studebaker 112. We will, however, be having our second annual summer picnic at Four Winds Field at 11 a.m. So if you live in the South Bend area, we would love to see you there. There will be food provided. There will also be games on the field and the splash pad will be open. So make sure to come to Four Winds Field next week instead of going to Studebaker 112. As always, if you consider yourself to be a part of South Bend City Church, you can give. It's through your generosity that we're able to do what we do. So if that's something that you're hoping to do today, you can go ahead to the show notes below or head to southbendcitychurch.com give. Thanks again for all your generosity, both in finances, time, and just being a part of our community. All right. This is our last week of our Idols, Icons, and Tech series. And if you were with us in person, you know that we had our no screen Sunday. So we asked people to voluntarily check their phones in at the door. And we also did printed programs instead of screens just to see what would happen, what we felt inside of ourselves, and what we experienced as a community. So if you would like to join us in this exercise, feel free to get this podcast going and then turn your phone upside down or turn it on airplane mode and fully engage with us for the next hour or so. But today, we recognize that in the past year, we've seen the rapid acceleration of publicly available AI technologies like ChatGPT. Along with this acceleration, we've seen the growing warnings about the dangers of AI. In our final week of idols, icons, and tech, we considered a framing theological story to help us make sense of where all of this might be headed. Thanks again for joining us. Let's join in with the rest of our community now.
1: Um, I have this memory that I've been ruminating on this week. The memory goes back to uh, late high school. I'm in this kind of stuffy office with a big wooden desk and wood paneling on the walls and my father is seated next to me and then across the desk there's an older gentleman there and we're there for some business. See, what's happened is that the insurance company that had insured my family for years, how, 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 homeowner's insurance, driver's insurance, etc that insurance company has dropped me from their insurance because they've deemed that as a driver I have become uninsurable. And that happened at roughly my 10th speeding ticket in like two years. I'm just surprised that the insurance company figured out I was uninsurable before the state figured out I should be (laughs) unlicensable. But there we were now in the moment, I actually don't know what the point of me being in the meeting was. I'm not sure if my father brought me along to show that he was sticking up for me or to teach me a lesson. But there we were. And all I could think about was, but guys, I like to accelerate. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, driving fast is fine, but accelerating, that's what feels amazing, right? Uh, We had this Dodge Intrepid, this used car that my brother and I traded uh, using uh, when we were going to school and working and all that kind of stuff. And I found out that the Dodge Intrepid had a governor at 110 miles per hour. And Capitol Bridge out there uh, in the farm fields is just a wonderful place to hit that governor or the bypass on the south side of town. But again, for me, it wasn't so much the feeling of speed as it was the feeling of acceleration. I really liked that feeling. Later, I got a motorcycle. Now, hold on. Thankfully, if you know anything about engines, it was a little 250cc Honda Rebel, which peaked out at 67 miles per hour. And I could feel the fuel tank like like rattling, about to bust off the bike when I would go that fast on it. But I sold it at the end of that first summer that I had the motorcycle, thinking the next summer I would buy a bigger, badder motorcycle with a bigger engine in it. And thankfully, between the summer when I sold my little motorcycle and the summer where I was gonna buy my bigger, badder, faster motorcycle, I realized the insurance costs for somebody with my driving record, for what's sometimes called a crotch rocket, (laughs) were more than I was paying in tuition at the time for college, and so I couldn't afford it. So I ended that little adventure before it started. But I like acceleration, because acceleration is actually where you feel the speed, right? I mean, you can be in a commercial airliner up at 30,000 feet in the air, you can be going five to 600 miles an hour in terms of ground speed, and it can feel up there like you're basically still, right? We're not actually very good at sensing speed. Our bodies, our brains, our sensory perceptions, we don't sense speed, we sense acceleration and deceleration. That's what what we can feel, right? And I know some in the room resonate with me when I tell you I like the feeling of acceleration. Others, you're you're very wise, you're prudent, you're very safety-minded, you have other feelings about rapid acceleration, but you all know what it feels like to sense acceleration. And I tell you all of that because that's the best metaphor I can come up with right now for what we are feeling with regard to technology in the year 2023, acceleration. It's less an objective measure of speed, perhaps, and more a feeling of rapid change in velocity in an upward direction. And for some of us, it's exciting, and for others, it's terrifying, and for a lot of us, it's a mix of both. Now, the both makes sense. This is the last week of a series that we've been teaching through that we've called Idols, Icons, and Tech. And we say that because in technology, we're discovering that our best and our worst shows up. Right? Worst we read the story of the Tower of Babel and considered how in some ways that is a story of idolatry, of us, humanity, giving ourselves over to the pursuit of power, using technology for something that actually robs us of our vocation in the world, that something that actually dehumanizes us and makes us less than what God has called us to. But we've, we've also observed that technology can be a profound expression of our calling as bearers of the image of God, as icons, uh, sacred images, doing God's work in the world, Right? And this week we're gonna wrap it up with a big think about one of the areas in technology where we feel all of that acceleration and we have some really big questions to ask about idols and icons in technology. This week I'm talking about artificial intelligence, AI. Yeah. Now of course one of the things that's caused us to feel the acceleration right now is when a group called OpenAI used a large language model to create a generative pre-trained transformer Uh, AKA a GPT and put it into a chat interface that allows you and me to have a conversation with this large language language model intelligence that goes out and uses all of the data that it has its hands on in the world to provide answers to us. Everything from simple answers to simple questions, to surprisingly complex answers, research papers, contracts, all kinds of things that you would have thought just a little while ago, only a human mind could come up with. And now we see something like chat GPT seeming to do a pretty good job with some of this stuff. Now, quick note on that, GPT, if you're familiar with, with it, it's had a, a few iterations just in the last year or so, different sort of editions um, that have been released. And in some of the earlier editions of it, if you really paid attention to what was happening, essentially what you had is a very sophisticated autocomplete. So by autocomplete, I mean like, you ever go to Google and type in some search terms and uh, maybe it's something like, I don't know, like, why are Michigan fans so, and then it fills in the word awful for you, right? Like, <laughs> It's not me, it's the algorithm. (laughs) But you know what Google's doing? It's just, it's seen millions of people type in those words, why are Michigan fans so? And then Google knows what what human beings often plug in next. That's an autocomplete, right? Well, some of the earlier iterations of ChatGPT, as far as we can tell, they're basically just very, very, very sophisticated autocompletes. And so they take the entire sentence or query that you give it, the, the question that you put to it, and then one word at a time, although it happens so quickly, you don't realize it's happening one word at a time, it's scanning all of this massive, staggering banks of data and trying to figure out what's the next prop- most probable word in the sentence. And it does that over and over again. And you end up with a sentence or a paragraph or a whole article written by ChatGPT. But really, you're just looking at like very sophisticated autocomplete. That's a sort of rudimentary large language model AI. But the most recent iterations of ChatGPT have left a number of like very serious thinkers wondering, is that really all that's happening? Because some of the results aren't so easily explained by what I just told you. As ChatGPT released its iterations, it's led to a fresh feeling of an arms race among big tech companies. One of the sort of immediately threatened enterprises for these companies is Search, where they make a lot of money by connecting advertising with Search. And when they realize that these AIs are gonna create much more effective and satisfying results for search queries, it creates a real run for these companies trying to figure out how they're gonna keep up with their competitors. All of this is driving a feeling of massive acceleration Uh, and AI is the tip of the spear when it comes to all of that. And we're gonna talk about it today. Uh, I wonder before I get into it, um, I wonder uh, if you have a feeling you wanna name when I raise the topic of artificial intelligence. Now, I'm not looking for thoughts uh, or long, sophisticated analyses. I'm gonna try to do that later. Like, leave that alone, that's my part tonight, today. Um, we don't have time for that, but I am curious. Like, what's the feeling? Like, what's, what's the actual feeling in, in feeling language that comes up for you when I mention artificial intelligence? Anyone? Excitement. Excitement, nice, thank you. Anxiety. Anxiety, yep, very good. Yeah, what else? Yeah. Apathy. Apathy. Yeah, I, I I heard that in the 90s too from some people. Yeah, what else? Broken. Broken. What else? Watchers. Say it again. Watchers. Watchers. Say a little more about that. AI or watchers? Oh, that the, the AI are doing the watching. Got it. Okay. Fear. Fear. Yeah. I was gonna say
0: frightening.
1: frightening. Yeah. 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 Competition, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, over here. Skepticism. Skepticism, thank you. Dehumanization. Dehumanization. Vulnerability. Vulnerability, Vulnerability. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, yeah. A twinge of existential dread. A twinge of existential dread, yes. Maybe I'll take that and run with it and we'll get into the teaching now. Very good. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, there were questions, concerns, and warnings that are being sounded right now about the rapid advancement of AI, and these are important and they should be sounded. A few examples if you've not been following along with some of these developments. An organization called the Future of Life uh, publishes an open letter recently, and in the sort of preamble raises these questions. Should we let machines uh, flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth? Should we automate away jobs that provide meaning and fulfillment? Should we develop non-human minds that might outnumber, outsmart and replace us? And should we risk the loss of control of our civilization? Those are big questions. The Biden administration just last week convened a summit of leaders and ethicists around technology and they're working for a framework of what they call an AI bill of rights. And by AI bill of rights, they don't mean rights for AIs, they mean rights for you and me in a world where AI is advancing very quickly. Uh, interestingly, back to the point of the kind of existential threat, uh, a, a, num- a large number of the people actually working on these AI systems in the past year were surveyed, and they were asked, "What do you think the odds are that the AIs that you are working on right now lead to the absolute uh, extinction of the human species? That you they actually wipe out humanity?" And the median answer, the median percentage that the people working on these systems put it at wasn't 1%, wasn't 0.1%, it was 10%! One one out of 10 chance that it leads to the extinction of our species, and that's coming from the people who are working on these things right now. Now, even if we uh, take one step back from the total uh, extinction of our species and the fears around that, which apparently are somewhat legitimate, uh, you've got disruptions in labor, disruptions in warfare, disruptions in creativity, disruptions in information and truth-telling to pay attention to. Uh, Moreover, uh, we've already seen that the AI systems we've already built that are publicly available for use and analysis have have demonstrated that they perpetuate the same kind of discriminatory biases that exist in the world we've already created, which shouldn't be surprising because these AIs are trained on our past behaviors and language. The systems we've already created pre-AI are the ones that are shaping the way that AI treats the world. And we're seeing in a bunch of these systems the way that they just carry forward and even amplify discriminatory or marginalizing effects for groups of people. That's something to be really concerned about. Um, And then underneath and wrapped around all of this are big existential questions about the nature of intelligence. What do we even mean by intelligence? Is a, a large language model intelligent? If so, in what way? How would we even know? Uh, A question about consciousness, which is one of the things that philosophers and scientists have been wrestling with for quite a while, like what is consciousness? Where do you locate it? What does it come from? How would you define it? And how would you ever know if something else is conscious? Uh, Is consciousness that can only be known in the first person? Can I only know that I am conscious? How could I ever know that you are? And then we have questions of what is a person? Maybe that seems like such a basic question that it's like obvious, but it's not. And it's one that we wrestle with all the time. Really, like the framework that we put around the definition of a person makes or breaks the kind of world that we build. Now, for example, I think most of us would agree that a rock, we would say, is not a person. And hopefully we would all agree that Homo sapiens, all of us, coming to different shapes and sizes and abilities and skin colors and experiences and genders that human beings are persons. That's an important category. I just saw this this week. One of the arguments made about the great harm of chattel slavery in the United States was not just the actual evil of chattel slavery against Africans who'd been uh, kidnapped and brought hostage over to the United States, but it was the narrative that it created about the lack of personhood in black people. And that narrative could get carried forward even when the chattel slavery technically ended, right? personhood really matters, and who we grant it to, and why, these are big, big theological and important questions, and some people are wondering already, like, would you ever consider an advanced AI a person, and if so, how, and why, and what are you going to do with that? Now, with all those questions and warnings, uh, I'm going to give you all the answers now. (laughs) Of course not. But what I thought I would do today is try to locate this in a theological story. Now, we've been doing this for three weeks now. Babel is a story that we've used to frame some of these things. I'm going to use a different framing today. And it's not the only theological framing that you could offer, but I think it's an interesting one. And from what I can tell, most of the people I'm talking to who are paying attention to the advance of AI are more aware of and in touch with the threats and the warnings than perhaps the possibilities. And so I wanna to move toward a frame that puts some possibility around all of this and see if it helps us. Um, how you think about what story you're in shapes everything. I told this when we were talking about the Apostles' Creed, it's such a funny anecdote to me, and yet it speaks so powerfully that I thought I would reuse it again today because I'm gonna to try to situate all this in a story and I wanna make the case that the story that you frame things with really matters. Uh, anybody, fans of the show Succession, don't lie, put your hand up, own it, I am. I don't believe there's only three fans of Succession in the room, but we'll move on, it's fine. Uh, HBO show, very compelling characters. If you've watched it, you know it has a lot of different energies to it. And in some reporting on the TV show, it was discovered that even among the actors in the show, there was some uh, confusion or some debate about what kind of show it was. And the story basically goes that one of the actors on the set during a break casually remarked about the fact that this is a comedy, that we're filming a comedy here. And one of the other actors said, wait, this is a comedy? And that's after they've made, like, many episodes of the show. And I don't know who who among the cast actually said that in the conversation. But I, I, I can imagine, for example, that Kieran Culkin, who plays Roy, maybe thinks that show is a comedy. Because the way he plays his character has so much comedic lift to it. And I'm pretty sure that Jeremy Strong, who plays Kendall, the eldest boy, that Kendall, Jeremy Strong, seems to think that he's in a very serious kind of Shakespearean drama of sorts. Because how you think about the nature of the story that you're in affects how you play it. And I think that goes for our relationship specifically to the staggering advances in artificial intelligence. So that's what I'm going to try to do today. I'm going to try to frame this in a story. We're going to go back to a text that we've looked at over and over and over again, but it orients us toward the whole trajectory. This is the book of Genesis chapter one, the very beginning. Uh, The notes are in your handout if you've got one, but I'll read it to you here and I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm just going to lift out some highlights because what I really want you to sense is the overall trajectory or energy or movement of what's happening in God's creative work in Genesis 1. So we we read at the very beginning that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light skipping down a bit. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees in the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds Skipping further, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Hold on to that word, teeming. Skipping further, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. And then finally, further down, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, um, just catch the arc of that. Just try to hold that uh, as an anchor point in the framing story that we're gonna put around the moment that we're living in. So we begin with a sort of formless chaotic darkness without shape to it, without life to it. And then God begins sort of sifting and sorting that into environments where life can flourish. And then God creates life in more and more diverse, flourishing, abundant forms. And then you get to that word team, T-E-E-M, uh, and you picture waters teeming with life. I, when I hear that word, I actually think of, uh, you ever go to Pottawatta Zoo and you feed the fish in the pond? right? And you throw that feed across the surface of the water. And what do you see? You see teeming, right? You see abundant fish bodies, right? It's, it's dynamic. It's energetic. It's abundant. It even feels a little bit chaotic, but you sense the energy of all of that diverse life in the world. And that's the arc of the story. And then you and I are not just given life, but we're given a calling in this world to be bearers of the image of God, to put our hands on the world. And it suggests that we're meant to carry that arc forward. So God has been shaping the raw materials into beautiful, abundant, and diverse forms of life, and then God calls us to get our hands on those same materials of the world around us and shape that world around us, and perhaps to make sure that it's a world with more and more flourishing for more and more diverse kinds of abundant, dynamic, perhaps even sometimes chaotic life. All right, that's Genesis 1. Now next to that, if we're kind of setting the table for this story here, I wanna turn to the sort of natural history of our species, which in my best understanding, isn't at odds with what we've just read, but rather we have a theological grounding in Genesis 1 And then we have the gift of the best and clearest things that we've learned about how our species came here in terms of biological processes and the advancement of our society. And if you follow that history, and here I'm borrowing very much from a particular article in Smithsonian Magazine, you go back 300,000 years to what is modern day Morocco. And there you'll find skulls, jaws, and teeth. And a lot of people who are studying this and trying to make sense of the history of our species say this is one of the early sort of epicenters of our species history. And the reason they say that these 300,000 year old living beings are us, part of our species, is not just that they look at the physiology of bones and skulls and teeth, and not just that they look at genetic evidence, although they have genetic evidence, that's pretty compelling. There's one other thing they cite when they are looking at these uh, very, very ancient relics and bodies and asking, are these human beings? The other thing that they mention is tools. Tools. And roughly 300,000 years ago, it seems that our species actually made a leap in the kinds of tools that we made. And the kinds of tools that we started making 300,000 years ago reshaped our relationship to the environment around us, to the ecosystem around us, and they even reshaped our communal structures a little bit. Now, when I say tools, and you're thinking, probably rightly, like very, very primitive, like stones that have been chipped away into certain shapes that are used in certain ways, and you're thinking, Jay, that's tools we're talking about, tech. And I'm telling you, I think tools are tech. Like I don't think technology is just something you plug in, in the wall that has a kind of digital component to it. And this definition comes from Kevin Kelly, a tech futurist who was here with us during Idea Week talking about the future of spirituality and technology. And Kevin's definition that I find really compelling, Kevin says technology is anything made by a mind. Anything made by a mind. So in that regard, the Grand Canyon's not tech, it's made by a river unless you think of the mind of God and then we're into another level. That's great. Fine. But by that definition, the Grand Canyon is not technology, but a beaver's dam is. There's a mind in that little beaver body that's working to create that thing. He says tech is anything made with a mind, which means these tools that we read about are uh, deep in our species history. And they're, they're early in the history, not just of our species, but of our relationship with technology. Fast forward to 12,000 years ago. I know that's a big fast forward. Uh, But you find another leap in the advancement of tools and technology that creates the possibilities of agriculture for the first time. So roughly 12,000 years ago, our species goes from nomadic hunter-gatherer life, which tends to keep us held in very small little bands of people, to more settled uh, rhythms of life in communities that develop around planted crops in places, right? Well, it's technology in its primitive forms that makes that move toward agriculture possible, but it's also that technology and that move toward agriculture that begins to shape us in dramatically different ways. Whether you like it or not, or believe it or not, like your, the brain in your skull right now and the way that it thinks about community and relationship is shaped by that era in our species history when we gathered in these sort of larger, more organized formats around the development of agriculture, which was made possible by tech. Fast forward further, further to the eighth to third century BC, and now you're in what a guy named Carl Jasperus calls the axial age. And he calls it the axial age for a number of reasons, but one of the things he observes is that after tens or even hundreds of thousands of years of species history for us, there's this kind of eruption of awakening and evolving consciousness during that 500 years. Uh, That little age from the 8th century to the 3rd century BCE, this is the era of Socrates, Confucius, Zoroaster, the Buddha, Pythagoras, and the Hebrew prophets. There's this sort of like global awakening happening all over the place at roughly the same time, and uh, Jaspers and others argue that one of the things that made that possible was more advances in agriculture, and with those advances in agriculture, the advent of cities. Now, I don't know if you think about it this way or not, but a city is a technology. Granted, it's lots of technologies. I get that. It's it's millions of technologies all bundled together to create this emergent thing that we call a city. It's everything from sewage to stoplights. It's it's a bunch of technologies. But you realize your car is a bunch of technologies too, right? And your computer is a bunch of technologies. Lots of technologies are actually bundled technologies. And the city is this massive emergent thing that comes with all kinds of things made by minds that make it possible for us to gather like that. Now, cities are high stakes. This is interesting. I'm trying to argue that as we keep moving along and as our species keeps growing up and as we keep becoming the things that we're called to become, technology keeps kind of traveling with us, making some of these things possible, acting on us even as we use technology to act on the world. And then we get to cities. And if you're you're looking at all of this through the lens of image bearing, of the divine calling to be creative and to make beautiful and good things for the flourishing of others and idolatry, of the things that diminish us and enslave us and the things that we use to enslave others, and you feel that kind of tension there. It's interesting to look at cities, evolution, and technology because cities are high stakes on both of those fronts, both in image-bearing and in idolatry, both both in the things that expand us and the things that diminish us, our best and our worst. The Santa Fe Institute studies things like cities, and they have mountains of data that demonstrate this very, very strong correlation. Uh, When you double the population density of anywhere, and a city is just population density, right? When you cross a certain line in terms of population density, you've landed in a city. When you when you double the population density of a place, watch this: you more than double its crime, and you more than double its creative output. When you when you heap up all that population density, some of the worst in us somehow gets even more empowered or enlivened, and some of the best of us. Somehow gets even more empowered and enlivened. Cities are more than the sum of their parts. They exponentially increase the outputs of the best and the worst in us. i tell you all of that from uh, our ancient ancestors 300,000 years ago and their primitive tools and what is modern day Morocco all the way to the advent of cities um, to make another connection to the, the story that I'm trying to frame this in. Because Genesis 1 begins with this human calling to tend to the world and make beautiful things of it, right? To participate in the sort of flourishing and teeming life that God is creating in the world. And then Genesis, or sorry, Revelation 21, the very, very end of the Bible. I'm literally now at the the back of the book. Uh, It ends, curiously, with a city. We read this. Uh, John the Visionary says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, maybe you feel like I lost the plot here because I'm trying to talk about like human development, tools, technologies, our best and our worst and how cities are a part of that and how the story ends with a city. But what you just read is that God creates God's own city and it kind of comes out of nowhere and it has nothing to do with the cities that we've created. Except for verse 26 in, in Revelation chapter 21. This is later in the chapter where we read the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into that city. Did you know that the eternal city is not just full of the glory of God? Did you know the eternal city is full of the glory of the nations, of humanity? Now, I don't have time today to exegete that line and do a long thread on glory. But there's a legitimate move that you can make here that suggests that, like, everything good that we create, everything good that we do, Everything beautiful that we fashion with our hands is somehow in a way I don't fully understand carried forward into that eternal city and made part of that eternal city that, that perhaps, um, the human journey to evolve, to grow up, to create more and the ways that we use technologies to do that is going to get folded into that eternal city and somehow be a part of its glory. Uh, think about this for a moment. We said that tech is anything that a mind can create. And that a beaver building a dam might be an example of technology. But here's one important difference. And I think now we're back to the unique calling as bearers of the image of God and what might be happening right now. Uh, As far as I can tell, humans are the only living things who, when they build technology, they create the future. As far as I know, if beavers are left to their own devices for a thousand years, they just keep building dams. They don't come up with hydroelectric power plants in those dams nothing they just keep building dams right so it's beautiful that animals create that animal minds do what they do but it seems to be unique to human minds that when we create we create futures you and i are living right now in a future that was made by human minds and shaped radically dramatically powerfully by the technologies fashioned by those human minds for better and for worse but what I'm trying to say is, like, don't underestimate the better. Don't understand the holiness at work in the better. Don't underestimate the divine calling at work in the better. And consider the possibility that even this AI stuff, even though there's plenty of reason to be very sober-minded about it and to be aware that at its worst, it could destroy us, that the AI stuff could also, right alongside all of our worst impulses, be an expression of our best highest, most divine impulses. I'm saying, yes, there are reasons to be concerned about the power and profit motives of these companies that are doing this, perhaps for some of the very wrong reasons. There are reasons to be concerned about governments getting their hands on these technologies and using them in warfare. Lots of reasons to be concerned about all of that. But what if, what if we were always meant to end up here in some form? What if when God said, I want to make you in my image, he meant I want you to do what I do. And Kevin Kelly said this too, sitting here on the stage, and I, I was so rocked by it. I've been thinking about it for four years now. What if when God said, I want you to bear my image in the world, one of the things that God eventually had in mind is that just in the same way that God made something in God's image, that we would be inspired to create something in our image. mean to ask, could we make things that think the way we think? that feel the way we feel, that create the way we create? And even though there are very serious risks that these endeavors could dehumanize us, what if there's other ways that these are the best and fullest and furthest expression that we have seen yet in our history of our humanity, of our calling to get our hands on these materials and to create more and more diverse and teeming forms of life? Now, I know this might sound like a stretch, this might sound a little woo-woo, you're like, that's one of those days where like Jay drank is, I don't know, like he's just out on another limb there. I get that. But I think this is actually a critical act of theological imagination for the world that we are living in right now. And it suggests not that we should take our hands off the wheel or be flipping about the very, very serious consequences of these technologies, but it means we might, in the effort to understand them and to work with them and to even help shape them for the world, we might be on the lookout not just for the threats and for the fears, but for the Spirit of God whispering to us, wooing us, calling us, propelling us, saying, yeah, something like this is what I always had in mind. That humanity would bring the genius that God has given to humanity to create more and more diverse forms of flourishing in life, and maybe even these technological advances are part of that journey. Uh, It's a way of saying, perhaps, that our evolution and the tools and technologies that have always been a part of it, that our evolution is itself an act of worship to God, an ode of honor to God, a kind of doxology that our species is like singing out over millennia as we keep growing one step at a time into the unimagined possibilities of the future that we were always called to create. And then the question is, how do we call upon the spirit and our best imaginations and our sharpest insights to shape that future in a way that expresses the image of God and that honors the image of God rather than a future that falls prey to the worst impulses of idolatry where power and profit override the kind of humanizing vision that we could have for these things? Um, There's a, a really interesting thinker who in the 1800s was way ahead of his time. Uh, he's a Jesuit priest and theologian. He's also a paleontologist. And it's interesting because here you've got a guy in the 1800s with a devout faith and a deep feeling of connection to God, who's also out there excavating Paleolithic man in rural parts of China and considering what these stories of evolutionary origins of our species, what they might say is they interact with this faith, not at war with this faith, not in a culture war fight with this faith, but in conversation with this faith. Uh, His writings, by the way, were like banned by the church for decades, and I think they largely only became available after his death. But you read them now and you think, there's some very strange stuff in in this guy's writings. But when you read Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, you also sense the kind of energy, the kind of fervent, um, worshipful vision that he had for the world that we are in where we keep taking our steps and we keep evolving. And somehow, even as we set our hands to creating life, in unimagined forms that God is both honored and at work in the process. Uh, my favorite piece of writing by Teilhard de Chardin is a prayer that he wrote. It's called, A Mass Upon the World or A Mass Upon the Altar of the World, depending on how it's translated. And uh, so the background on this is that Teilhard is a priest and you know he has this uh, commitment to practicing the Eucharist uh, regularly in his life. And yet he's out there in the far reaches of like Mongolia And curiously, there's not a church nearby in the early 1800s for this to happen or the mid-1800s. And so he writes this really expansive prayer. At the beginning, he says, because I don't have, you know, the fixtures of a church upon which to set the Eucharist and to make my prayer, rather I will see the whole world as my altar upon which I offer a prayer of sacrifice to God. And um, I can't read this prayer without being moved to tears. It's... um, You can just sense his imagination stretching out both over time and space, reaching back to the earliest origins of our species and the earlier creative acts that preceded it in in time. So he's stretching out, but also in space, wrapping his heart and his mind around the entire world and the entire human family. He he says in the prayer as he begins, you know, I now bring to mind um, everyone and everything that is created and gather all that up in this prayer. And then he says to God... Um, That there was a time I know when we all thought that the sacrifice that you wanted, the thing that satisfied you, was the death of an animal on the altar in the temple. And he says, but the thing we know now, the thing that we see, is that the sacrifice that satisfies you, the praise that you desire, is nothing less than the universe born onward in its becoming. You and me and the society that we are a part of and the whole world born ever on, onward carried forward in this evolution of um, more and more diverse and teeming innovations and forms of life. You and me getting our hands on the raw materials of this creation and creating more and more good and beautiful things and perhaps even making some of those things in our image and wondering if perhaps. They might think, they might even feel. I don't know the answer to those questions, but I think there are reasons to not simply be wary, but strangely to be worshipful as we reflect on the story that we are a part of, the expansiveness of it and the possibility of it. And so, um, yeah, let's be vigilant. Some of us are probably called to do really important work in these fields, to to get into the action, right? And all of us, Are called to be mindful and informed about the world that we are shaping together. But as you do that, perhaps listen for whether you you might also hear the voice of the spirit whispering saying like, let there be and through us saying, let there be, let there be life and abundance and teeming and flourishing, even in the things that we create that we would not have conceived of just a little while ago. Uh, This has been a bit heady, I fear. Uh, There's a song that we sing sometimes around here that, we were talking and felt that it kind of captures the heart of this in a way that hopefully feels a little less analytical and a little more, um, from a deep place inside. And so before we go, we thought we would take a minute with this song. If you want to sing along, that's great. If you want to stand, that's great. If you want to stay seated, that's great. If you want to reflect, that's great. Uh, but we'll take a minute with this before we go.
0: So Jay said this a couple weeks ago, um, The point of the series is not to like abolish tech, it's not to get rid of it, but it's to use it in beneficial and beautiful ways. So you might think this is cheesy, but we're gonna ease you back into screens this morning. Uh, The lyrics will actually be on the screen and that's definitely not because it was added late this week. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Jay. but let's ease into screens together. And uh, like Jay said, if you wanna sing along, that's where you'll find those lyrics today.
1: stand to your feet so may you hear the doxology that has been sung from the very beginning this creation was brought to life by a God who dreamed of it and loved it and called it forth may you hear the delight of a God who finds joy in the creation that God sees May you hear the doxology in us, the praise that rings forth as we grow forward in our becoming. That over this long stretch, our own becoming has been itself an act and offering of praise to God. May you sense the joyful presence of God with us in the high stakes work of being human and shaping these things for the benefit of the world, of our neighbors and our enemies. May you sense the presence of the Spirit with you in this good and harrowing work. And may we build the kind of world whose glory and honor belongs in that eternal city that God calls us to in the end. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you at the picnic next week.